Well, good morning, church. He is risen. Listen, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb. And so I want to say welcome to all of you that are in the room this morning. For those who are watching online, welcome this morning. Happy Easter as well. And to all the kids in the room who ate Cadbury eggs for breakfast, anybody? That's how you start Easter right there. I didn't get a chance to do that. What a joy it is to be able to spend a little bit of time with you as you open the scriptures on this Easter morning and as we celebrate together the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. I would argue that perhaps like never before, we as the church collectively as God's people have, have been anticipating the signs of spring. Eager to see something new happen, eager to see Easter because we know along with Easter comes hope. Now in South Carolina, that kind of welcome kind of comes sweet and comforting every year. You know when you wake up in the morning and you walk outside and on your car hood, there's a nice dusting of yellow pollen. Ah, spring, right? The other day I was here at the church and I walked outside and there was so much pollen in the air. It looked like you'd do like snow angels in the yard if you wanted to, but yellow snow, you know, it doesn't quite work the same way. But that's what spring looks like in South Carolina. Can I get an Amen. Now hopefully very soon we're moving past that. But when spring begins to spring, we begin to see life all around us, don't we? Budding out on trees and, and plants and flowers everywhere. Spring is the season of new life. My wife and I recently, I say recently, actually in August we bought a new home. We've been remodeling it since then. So we live with my parents now for two different stretches of time, which is really fun. And um, we've been staying with them, all my children and everything. We've had a great time. We've survived each other. And... Uh, we decided that on our new house, we would kind of like start with a blank slate. So we pulled all the bushes, all the flowers, everything, pulled it out of the yard so that we could start with this kind of like stark, like just blank canvas to be able to plant new things this spring. Nothing but mulch out in the yard. Now, a couple days ago, we, we came back to the house and walked outside. And in the backyard, I walked across the yard and I looked over and I saw this growing in our backyard, popping right through the mulch. A little green plant. We had no idea it was there. It must have been some kind of bulb under the ground sitting there waiting until spring would come. And then it would show its sign of new life right in the middle of our mulch that we had just put down. You see, the story of Easter begins in the scriptures in a place much like this. Where there seems like there's no life. And all of a sudden life begins to spring forth. It begins with Jesus buried in the ground. It begins on a Friday. It begins in a sealed tomb. It begins with death. It begins in the end. But after three days, the disciples remember back to the fact that their Messiah, the one they believed who would come to rescue all of humanity, he'd been killed on a Roman cross. This is where Easter begins. This is where our story begins. Now John chapter 20, one of the accounts within the Gospels, speaking of this particular story, begins with a very specific line to it. You may have read it already this morning in preparation for Easter today. But in chapter 21, the very next chapter, it begins at the exact same line as well. The author is not wanting us to miss something very specific by using the same line at the beginning of the Easter story and the end. It bookends the entire thing. It's very simple. John writes this, on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. Now within Jewish circles, the, the final day of the week would actually would have been Saturday. That would have been their Sabbath, their time of rest. But in this case, it would have been a time of grieving. So Sunday, this would have been the first day of the week. We all know what the first day of the week feels like, though, don't we? It's a Monday. You know, and you go in, you have to start afresh and anew. But with a different lens, you can look at it a different kind of way. That, that a Monday, the first day of the week, it's, full, it's chock full of possibilities. It's full of promise. It tells us that no matter what last week was like, this is a fresh new day, a new beginning. 
This is what's happening in John chapter 20. This is something new. Something novel is at hand. Something that has never happened before. has never taken place. It's the first day of the week. And we, can we all just acknowledge this morning that we collectively, the world, needs to have a first day of the week. Something fresh. Something new. Can we collectively affirm that on this Easter morning as we gather here in this place, we long for something fresh, for some kind of healing, from pandemic to election, from loss to disappointment, to pain and suffering, from being locked down or being masked up. This Easter meets us in a place like never before. And I would argue that potentially we this morning here in this room find ourselves in a unique place where we can relate to Mary's arrival at the tomb early on that Easter morning as she comes with a heart full of grief. Would you stand if you are able for the reading of God's word? I want to read from John chapter 20, verse 11 through 17. Here's what it says. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped down and looked inside of the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. You see, at the heart of this Easter story is deep grief and unexpected surprise. Mary has traveled to a cemetery, a place full of tombs, to a place full of death to anoint the body of Jesus. She is weeping and grieving over the loss of her friend. She's one of the earliest followers of Jesus within his ministry, and she's witnessed his brutal death. But she's shocked to find the tomb is now empty, sitting there only by two angels, one at the head, one at the foot. And they ask her a question. There's a question that's repeated throughout these, this particular passage. They say to her, why are you weeping? Now, she never thinks for a second that the reason this empty tomb exists is because of a resurrection from the dead. In fact, she concludes that Jesus' body must have been taken by someone else and taken somewhere else. But then Mary turns and she sees Jesus standing there. And the Bible tells us that for whatever reason, she doesn't recognize him. And perhaps Jesus, though it's him, it's his glorified body, restored and healed to the point that it's unrecognizable at first, like seeing someone that you've not seen in a very long time, and it takes time to kind of settle in. Or perhaps she's still in shock over the past 36 hours of what's just taken place, in such shock that she's unable to recognize him. Regardless, she sees him but doesn't know who he is. The Bible says she mistakes him for a gardener. She mistakes him for the caretaker of the tombs. Now, a cemetery in the ancient Near East like this was a mixture of beauty and blemish, delight and death. Because surrounding the tombs of the dead was a garden full of life lined with flowers and lined with trees. I've had the opportunity to walk alongside of many families within this church uh, and take part in funerals for folks that we love. And oftentimes you experience the same kind of thing at a funeral. There's weeping and there's laughing. 
There's flowers and there's coffins. There's joy and there's sorrow. And they're often mixed together in one location. As I researched this passage this particular week, I came across something kind of interesting. Different art pieces from the 14th and 15th century depicting this particular story where Mary meets Jesus at the empty tomb and she mistakes him for a gardener. Here's three different pictures I want to show you. Here's the first one. You see Jesus there on the right. What do you notice is in his hand? It's a garden implement of some kind. The next picture. He's got a shovel. He needs a shirt. Next picture. A little floppy hat, right? 14th, 15th century paintings, engravings of this kind are all over the place. And these particular uh, pictures depict what takes place between Jesus and Mary here. In every one of these pictures, Jesus is shown with some kind of gardening tool. Some kind of floppy hat, some preparation to have his hands in the dirt. It is not uncommon for a gardener to be in a garden like this, tending to the trees, tending to the flowers, as those would come to pay their respects to those who had passed. And so Mary, when she turns around, she believes she's run into the caretaker of the tombs, a gardener. Now for many of us in the West, we miss out on these really kind of seemingly insignificant pieces of the story often. But we have to acknowledge that the writers of the New Testament, they hardly ever wrote anything, penned anything by accident. It's almost always on purpose. In fact, in the studying of Scripture, there's a certain principle scholars use as they study the Scriptures, and it's this. It's called the law of first mention. And so as you read about a certain word or a certain doctrine or a certain story within the Scriptures, you have to ask this question. Where does this concept, this idea, first show up within the Scriptures? Where does it first show up in the Bible? Because potentially it opens up and unlocks the intended meaning of the writer. So the question is, from this story, where is the first place we see a garden of some kind with a gardener? Where does it first take place? It's the book of Genesis. You have to go way, way, way back to the very beginning. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. You may be familiar with this. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. You see, God is the very first gardener making this garden called Eden, the Bible tells us this particular place was perfect. It was full of what the Hebrews called shalom or wholeness, perfection. Everything in its place and everything deriving its life from God. It's where everything begins. With a God who's a gardener and his perfect creation. Now I must confess I am not a very good gardener in any way, shape, or form. In fact, over the time, my wife and I, we have tried to kind of plant a few things here and there within our yard in different kinds of ways, sometimes raised beds, sometimes straightened the ground. We've planted tomatoes and basil and strawberries. And I have to confess that every single time it's ended in only one single way, burnt up, completely wasted, hardly any fruit at all to be shown for what we planted in the ground. And every single time it becomes very clear to me, I am no gardener. I have no idea what I'm doing. Though I would like to improve. And it's kind of disappointing because actually my grandmother was a master gardener. I remember as a kid, my grandmother had a little uh, greenhouse on the farm that we lived on. And she would oftentimes go outside and she had little trays, little black trays that she would fill with dirt and then plant small seeds inside of each place. And she would tend to them carefully, water them, make sure that they could grow. And eventually she would transfer them to pots and then eventually to her huge lush garden right outside the house. I remember walking with her and pulling vegetables from the garden to eat in the house and snapping peas right there in the yard. It's a good memory for me when I was a kid, and I watched her as a good gardener take care of the soil. 
I remember somewhere along this week reading a description that that really showed me what a gardener, a master gardener looks like. Here's what it says. It best falls somewhere in the space between science and art. Gardening well requires constant attention and patience, intervention and restraint, creativity and knowledge, labor and love. Master gardeners know when to prune, when to wait, when to till, when to allow a field to lie fallow, when to sow and when to harvest. You see, this is the kind of care that God displays as he speaks about bringing life into the world, as he gets his hands into the soil and forms humankind and breathes his life into them. You see, the first place we find a garden is in Genesis chapter 2 at creation, as God makes everything that we know and see. Now the very next chapter, in chapter 3, we find out this shalom, this perfection that exists within the garden is disrupted because of sin. It disrupts the shalom. We rebel against God. Sin enters the world. And for the first time, this perfect creation is now plagued by death. And if we're honest, we feel this. And if we're honest, if we look at the world around us, we feel this particular piece of the story, Genesis chapter 3. But I'd like to remind you this morning, the story doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts where? In Genesis 1 and 2. With a good creation that God had made. And so Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Do you, do you see all the loaded truth behind this mistaken identity? The writer wants you to see Jesus with shovel in hand, floppy hat on his head, hands in the dirt. You see, he was, he was crucified and laid in the tomb but he was not defeated. Evil had not won. Instead, he had been planted. And the Bible says that he is the first fruits of all creation. This resurrected life of Christ is the precursor to the resurrection that awaits those who place their faith and their hope and their trust in him. Jesus is a good gardener even in the mistaken identity. You see, what is revealed in this interaction between Mary and Jesus is that Jesus is the caretaker of all of humanity. He is the caretaker of all of humanity. He knows exactly how to take care. In this one moment, we get a very clear glimpse of the very reason for which Jesus came. His entire life and his death has led up to this interaction. He's the good gardener who has come to restore what has been lost and to heal what has been broken to bring new life to all that God has made. You see, the resurrection is a reaffirmation of the goodness of creation and means by which all things will be made right once again. And so standing at this empty tomb, Mary sees Jesus and he asks her a question, the same question that the angels asked. He says, Mary, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now, Mary could have found this question offensive. Are you the only one who has no clue what has taken place over the past few days? Are you you the only one who has no idea what's going on? We are standing in a tomb. We are in a cemetery. I have lost my friend. Of course I'm weeping. But she doesn't respond this way. There seems to be a depth to this question that allows her to reflect on not just why she's weeping in this moment, but weeping over the brokenness all around her. During this last 40 days of Lent, this preparation for Easter, I've been thinking about this particular question often. The reasons for, for which we weep. The reasons for which we are heavy laden. Can you name it? 
Can you put a name to it? Why are you weeping? Maybe this year has been one where you've experienced profound loss. Maybe this year is a year when you have become so aware of how desperately our country and our world is in need of being redeemed. Maybe this pandemic has so drained you there's nothing left. Maybe your marriage is but a shell. Your family is disconnected. Maybe the lack of basic needs of water and food for people around the world weighs heavy on you. Maybe the fact that there are children who are sold as commodities breaks your heart. Maybe the anger and the frustration in our country is more than you can bear. Why do you weep? Why are you weeping? See, Jesus says something to his disciples before this ever takes place. Four chapters before chapter 20, Jesus says to those who follow him, he's foreshadowing his death. He says, one day you will mourn. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he will die. You will mourn. But then he says, your grief will turn to joy. Your grief will turn to joy. So at this empty tomb, we discover resurrection joy. Though many of us, like Mary, have been weeping among the graves, brokenhearted over the struggles of life, we embrace new hope. We rejoice in this garden because we have a loving gardener who has risen from the grave and offers us the opportunity for resurrection life, not just one day when we die, but right here and right now. Why do you weep? You see, Easter is about looking around, seeing new life bursting all around us, even if we can't see it right now. What's the most interesting thing about this story to me is as Mary is talking with Jesus, she doesn't recognize him until he does one specific thing and he calls her by name. He says, Mary. And then she recognizes that it's him. Just a few nights ago, my family was cooking dinner at my parents' house because we live there. <laughs> we were cooking dinner and all the adults in the kitchen were having a conversation about something and we were kind of intent in conversation, kind of really focused. And my kids came into the kitchen and, and my youngest son walked up and he's trying to get my attention. He said, dad, 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 dad. If you're a parent in the room, you know what this is like, right? Dad, dad, dad. It was just white noise. I couldn't hear it. I was so focused on what was going on right here. When all of a sudden he realized his tactic that he has chosen was not working out. So he finally said, Trevor. <laughs> and as soon as he did, I realized, Owen, what? What do you need? What I've recognized in my life, and what I think is true from this passage as well, is that we pay attention when we are called by name. Watching Owen do this took me right back to when I was a kid with the same problem. Mom, mom, dad, dad, Phil, Cindy. So finally I could get someone's attention. When Jesus says, Mary, it seems to cut through the grief like a knife. It evaporates the fog of sadness. I can imagine Jesus speaking to her with such tenderness, such concern, such mercy, such love. She must have known that what Jesus was saying here is that he was making things right. He was restoring what had been broken. He was bringing things back to right. This Easter, I want you to know one thing this morning. This is personal. What Jesus has done here is personal. It's not just for everyone in the world, as we say, though it is. But it is for you as well. Wherever you find yourself today, Jesus calls your name too. And he invites you, just as he does Mary, to believe that he is indeed alive and active in the world. And working on your behalf. So that we don't lose heart, but instead we receive new life from his new life. See, the longer that I'm a follower of Jesus, 
the more that I wrestle with what it means to follow this Jewish rabbi who was crucified on a cross, who was then laid in a tomb, and who we believe rose from the dead after three days, the more I live this life, I come to find that it's about a simple trust in the fact that he is working. Sometimes under the soil where it can't be seen, but we trust. It comes to a submission, not to my will and the things that I want, but, a, but the will of God. Not only that, but it's a confession that we've been a part of this broken world and we too find ourselves broken in need of healing. And it's faith that our lives can be made new, no matter what they've been like in the past. We have to let this good gardener work within the fields of our lives to pull the weeds, to till the soil, to plant the seed of the gospel, to carefully prune and to help us grow. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to drive seven hours to Wilmore, Kentucky. I'm in seminary right now, working through classes, and so occasionally I have to drive to Kentucky to spend time for a whole week in, in two different classes. And I don't mind driving seven hours to learn new things, especially because my aunt and uncle live in town, so I get to spend time with them, and they are like impeccable hosts. It's, it's so fun to go and, and hang out with them. And right now, this particular time that I got to go up north, my grandfather has recently moved in with them in their house in Wilmore because my grandmother, uh, the wonderful gardener, she passed away a couple years ago. My grandfather's health is not what it once was, so he can't live by himself anymore. And so he's moved in with them. They've built a little apartment in the house. And so when I got to go to Kentucky this time, I had a chance to sit and spend time with them each and every day when I get home from class. And so sure enough, we'd stay up till like 1130 at night watching YouTube car chases and tractor pulls, you know, we spend our time wisely. So we would just spend time and watch these things and hang out with each other. And my grandfather during the week began to tell me these stories I'd never heard before. All kinds of stuff about how he and my grandmother lived in Germany during the war and all kinds of different things and, you know, uh, fun things they did together. And he was telling me all these stories and he would tell me, then he would say, listen, you probably don't want to hear this anyway, though. I was like, no, Grandpa, I do. I do want to hear this. Because I realize as he realizes, and our family realizes, we don't know how much time we have. He's not as healthy as he once was. So my grandpa don't tell me all the stories. I want to hear the stories. And one night while we were spending time, probably in the middle of a car chase, <laughs> he said to me, you know, um, I think I want you to do my funeral. I was like, Grandpa, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I, don't, I don't really want to think about that. I mean, you got to understand, my grandfather is like one of my best friends from the time that I was very young. So I said, I don't really want to, but if that's what you want, I will. But let's don't talk about it anymore. He said, listen, I, as concerned as I was about talking about this kind of topic, he was not. He said, listen, I've had a good life. The Lord's been good to us. He was good to your grandmother. He's good to me. He's like, listen, I, I know where I'm going. I, I'm not concerned. In fact, I'm ready to go. I want to see your grandmother. I want to experience this resurrection life that we've been talking about. And that week I was so convicted by the fact that spending time with this old Indiana farmer, the kind with dirt under his nails that smells like the field when he comes inside, showing me what it looks like to have faith and trust and hope in the fact that Jesus is indeed the gardener who is making all things right. He really does make graves into gardens. The places that were broken, the places that were dead, he brings new life there. You see in the story, after Jesus calls her by name, he says, Mary. She turns to him and she, she clings to him. And Jesus says, listen, you cannot cling to me. 
I've got places to go, things to do. So I'm going to be with the Father. But I love what he says. It's a a, a major switch. The world has changed here in this story. And he says to her, I'm going to the Father, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Jesus has made a way, and he's making all things well. So I want to invite you this Easter morning, on this first day of the week, to allow Jesus to cultivate your life. Perhaps your heart is hardened. Allow him to break up the soil. Perhaps there's distraction. Maybe there's some weeding, some rocks that need to come out, that he might grow something new and fresh and healing within you. So I want to invite you this morning, if you would, would you pray with me today on this Easter morning, this first day of the week? Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your great love, your grace, and your mercy that you extend to every single one of us. I'm grateful, Father, that we have the opportunity to come and worship with one another here in this space this morning. Father, we're in need of something new and fresh in our lives. We invite you to do it. We believe, God, I'm convicted you're the only one who can. So we open ourselves up to you. And we ask that you would do something within us that only you can do. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the opportunity for new life and resurrection power. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone said, amen.